for for our hundredth episode, we will record it as the Ruby Rouges. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 89 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Katrina Owen. Hello. Josh Susser. Hey, good morning, everyone. James Edward Gray. I'm recording this episode from the hot system. Avdi Grimm. I'm recording this episode from Dantooine. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and I just got back from New Media Expo and uh, CES. So, uh, Where was that? It, they were both in Vegas. So, so can you actually tell us about what happened there, or does everything that happens there, etc.? <laughs> well, so New Media Expo, I was actually there speaking on podcasting. Um, they also had the Podcast Awards, and we were nominated as um, one of the technology podcasts. Um, and being nominated Thank is... You, everyone kind of a big deal and so yeah thank you everybody for who uh nominated us the we were po- the only like specific language podcast in the entire tech category so that was kind of that was kind of crazy yeah yeah I, I think we were sort of the underdog every you know you know we we definitely stood out as as being pretty specialized i think yeah, yeah. for sure yeah but it comes down to votes over the 15 days that they have the voting open and Todd Cochran was talking about maybe shortening that, so uh, it might run a little bit differently next fall. But uh, anyway, Leo Laporte was uh, actually emceeing the the event, and we lost out to the Audacity to Podcast show, and that's done by uh, Daniel J. Lewis. He's actually made a pretty good name for himself in, in the podcasting and technology space, so um, just want to congratulate him, but uh, yeah, we were in the running, so... Thanks, everybody, who voted for us. And, uh, you know, we'll look forward to being nominated again next year. One- next year, we're in it to win it. Yeah, no, <laughs> no kidding. We're playing for keeps this time. That's why we started with Sandy Met so early in the year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we have another announcement, and I'll let James take that one away. Yeah, we did the voting uh, recently. We asked uh, all of you to go and vote about... What was the best episode of 2012? And um, we, we had some great runners up. Uh, the Angela Harms episode did very well. Uh, also, uh, Gary Bernhardt uh, is always great when we have him on the show. And his um, episode where we talked about his testing style, that was, uh, that was also uh, very high up there. But the, the winning episode was... Uh, therapeutic refactoring from Katrina when we had her on the show back before she was rogue. So I thought that was really cool. It kind of validated our our choice to invite her to join us. So that was awesome. And thanks for letting us know what you enjoyed. Yeah, we'll have to get Katrina back on the show. That's a good point. You should ask her if she'll come back. Anybody know where to find her? (laughs) She's stuck in Norway. I don't think she'll come. (laughs) <laughs> well, well. Ne- ne- next time we see her, we have a, a foot-tall golden statue of a programmer. <laughs> <laughs> Dang! Wow. Very cool. So, so hey, what are we what are we talking about this week? We we have the, we have our, our our amazing guest star Katrina Owen. What are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Gee, uh, we're talking about rescue projects today. Oh, 
What, what's a rescue project? I don't know. You're the definition guy. Tell me. Um, let's see. Rescue project. Uh, Britney Spears. You know, 2000. Oh. No, no, no. We want rescue projects that have some hope of being oh, rescued. Oh, no. She's doing great now. I mean, two th- you know, she, you know, a couple years ago, she was a total wreck. She was, you know, shaving her head on video and, you know, her life had become a, rea- a cheap reality show. And now she's, you know, she's, you know, back on back on her game. She's dancing. She's singing. She's recording albums. Dude, we should have her on the show. <laughs> <laughs> What the heck? I, I, I would die. <laughs> what did I call into this morning? <laughs> die of okay, excitement so, or die um, of shame? I'm kind of curious. Rescue, pro- a rescue project is a project that you started with, with the best of intentions, but somehow things went wrong. And you need a little help from a trained professional to get you out of trouble. The, I, I have an example rescue project that I can, I'm, can, I can mention. Okay. And that's, uh, that was Twitter. So when I worked at Pivotal Labs... Um, it made news all over the internet that that Twitter had hired Pivotal Labs to come in and help rescue the you know because they were getting fail whales all over the place and features weren't working and and Twitter was in a terrible state. Uh, their their whole software development process was so messed up that it literally took months from the time that people completed a feature and and pushed it into git before it actually before it got pushed out the door and users got to use that new code so they were it was just a mess they hired pivotal pivotal went in i never worked on that project but pivotal went in and worked on like tons of stuff and really helped them with the process and they turned it around and they really have a an excellent engineering you know process and department and so it sounds like that was that rescue was actually more about the process than the code quality and I think that's a, a really important lesson because in most rescue pro- projects, the code isn't the big problem. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, well, it's like uh, Glenn Vanderberg uh, was saying that, uh, what was his quote, that uh, he never saw a project fail for technical reasons. And he also has, you know, the corollary of, corollary of that is, you know, he's never seen one that succeeded for technical reasons. Mm. Yeah, yeah, but at the same time, I mean, in most of these cases, you have a ton of technical debt. And so I think the trick oh, yeah. is is to get them to quit digging in that hole, as opposed to you know. So, so the the code is kind of the hole, but you got to get them to quit digging so you can fill it back in, and mm-hmm. and and build the building with the right kind of foundation. So this is um, when Chuck and I were in Hawaii for Aloha RubyConf. We sat down with Corey Haynes for a little bit at dinner one night, and Corey Haynes kind of made the joke, and, and we all laughed, but that he thought someday Rails projects would become synonymous with rescue projects. But, I, I, I mean, in a way, you know, obviously we do see a lot of rescue projects in, in uh, Rails, but at the same time, I'm wondering if that's even a bad thing. Like that, that Rails, you know, does give us the means to get something up, and get it validated. And then if you're successful, you know, and maybe you didn't have the best of systems in the beginning, the best of, uh, you know, processes or, and, and that didn't result in the best of code or whatever, whatever the reasons, then you're validated and, and you know that you have the means to get it fixed. So it ends up becoming a rescue project. And is that necessarily a bad thing? Well, I think that that's, uh, you can generalize that to pretty much any Software projects. So, like Java projects all become rescue projects eventually. I think it's just as a, a thing that happens in the ecosystem that as the average lifetime of existing projects gets longer and longer, 
more of those things will be at a state where they're in need of rescuing. Well, I think the other thing is is that it's a it's basically a I'm trying to think a consequence of of the fact that in a lot of cases we're solving problems we haven't solved before. And so in some cases we wind up solving them the wrong way. We don't have the experience to know that we're we're kind of walking down the wrong path. And so we we get way down there. We, you know, we get real deep into the hole and then we realize that there's a better way. And so in some cases we wind up rescuing rescuing our our own projects when we have the time to go in and actually get it done right. You know, when when the pain of the decisions we've made um, gets to the point where it's it's painful enough to force us over into um, that place where we refactor out the the decisions we made in the past. Uh, okay, so so we've we've talked about a few uh, a few ways to uh, look at what a rescue project is. Maybe we can um, spend just like a, a few more minutes trying to come up with a compendium of the kinds of things that need rescuing. That you know, because we because we've danced around it a little bit here. Okay, so uh, does someone have, have one to start with? Sure. Right. The, the thing I see a lot of is performance, that the initial mm-hmm. design, when something gets, you know, moderately popular, it, then it begins to have performance concerns and can't keep up. And, and I think that's totally normal and, you know, doesn't even necessarily speak to the skill used to build it and stuff in, in a lot of ways because, for example you know, we often don't know what the stress point is going to be until something does get a little popular and and has the pressure put on it, so to speak. So then that makes those kind of things more obvious and we know what to fix, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Performance is one. Uh, I've, I've seen ones where, um, like, it was a one-person development team. And, you know, he'd been working on this code base for a couple years all on his lonesome. And you know you can imagine what that code base looked like. So you know you know the 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 typical thing is you have like a very small team or a one person team that have created a code base, and they realize that uh, there's it needs some serious refactoring. Yeah, to, like, to, to a lot get of times, it to the point where other people can work on it. A lot of times, um, it was you know their first project or close to their their first project or their first project in Ruby or something like that. You know, and I mean, I've talked to people that were that one developer, and they're they're like, yeah, you know, when I when I started this, um, I had no idea what I was doing. I had, you know, I had no idea how to test properly, and so you know, none of the stuff that I wrote in the first couple of years has any tests around it, and and stuff like that. But then I've okay, also st- seen stability, stability. That's a that's a yeah. rescue project thing. But I, I mean, I, there's a lot of other team patterns that can that can lead to it. I mean, you know, I've seen the 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 high turnover project. You know, we had this this one person, and then we had this other person, and then we had this other person, and uh, you know, and then there's there's the 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 low communication team that uh, that just didn't didn't talk to each other that well. You know, maybe they were one of the more de- dysfunctional distributed teams where like there there was was an internal there was an in, you know a, a, an on site team, and then there was like one or two satellite people that didn't really talk didn't really communicate with the in, inside team as well. I've seen also um, the outsourced project. Yeah. Oh, yes. I've definitely seen that one. <laughs> oh, how about the big port? Uh, actually, I was just going to bring up one that was pretty much that I worked on one where like, they gave them the existing .NET app that they wanted rewritten in Rails. And it was like, here, here's the code you have. 
it, it was a very short number of months. I can't remember. And we have to launch in that time or we lose money, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so it's basically almost a direct port. Yeah. I have another one. It's the, um, the prototype that went into production. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes. She's talking yeah. about all my programs now. Which is highly related to the one that's probably like one of the most most common I've seen, which is the startup. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then you have the one then you have the one where um oh but we're it's it's we're only gonna use it once. The the five dollar haircut. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I think this is all very related to you know you know Michael Feathers calls any code that well actually I think Michael Feathers calls any code that doesn't have tests around it legacy code but you know there are other people that that, that basically call uh, any code you you wrote yesterday legacy code um, and you know it, it gets it gets into the the uh, sort of a gray area where like in some ways almost every project is a rescue project in some ways you know in some areas. Um, and not every, you know, quote rescue project I've been on has really been like, uh, you know, it's going to die tomorrow if, if we don't completely turn it around. But, but many, many projects have many, many projects find themselves on the wrong, going the wrong way on the entropy scale. Put it that way. (laughs) Okay. So we have a, we have this, uh, you know, big list now of different kinds of projects that need rescuing. But I, I think the thing that they all have in common is the panic factor. That's a very good point. Yeah, that is. The, it is that the, the people managing the project feel like they're in trouble and that they, they're not capable of solving their problems on their own. So they, so they, and, and, but so rescue projects are not always, you know, consultants parachuting in and, you know, saving the day and then, you know, riding off into the sunset. It, you know, oftentimes That's teams. That's what it's like for me. You must be doing it wrong. <laughs> well, we we all aspire to live up to that role or that model you've set for us, James. <laughs> but yeah. the, um, but I, I think that sometimes teams rescue themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, you, you don't need you don't need to call in outside help for rescue projects. And I've I've rescued my own projects before, and I've seen other people do it too. So yeah. so you can you can be your own hero. It's very true. So, I I think the the term le- legacy code is pretty interesting. Chad Fowler did a talk on that, um, where a legacy in a lot of other industries is is a good thing, and in our industry, it's turned into this terrible thing that you absolutely do not want. Um, and he coined a new term uh, for it, and he calls it aftermath code. <laughs> I like it. So, so th- this is one of the things I had I had uh, noted to talk about on here, and that's that uh, I've I've been caught saying this several times before, is that existing code is not an asset; it's a liability. And, right. and I've I've had this conversation with uh, with like startups a lot, where they'll they'll come and they'll say, "Oh, you know, I have I have this. You know, what are your assets? Well, I have this. You know." two-year-old code base and it does a lot of great stuff. I'm like, that's not an asset. That's a liability. That's, that's two years of technical debt that you need to manage. It's also two years of, of learning though. Well, yeah. sure. But, but that's the asset. The, right. The, you know, the, the asset is the value that it provides for the company in the, you know, the, the, uh, how much your users are paying you for it, how much you're learning from the code. You know, you know, all of the all the knowledge that's encoded in it, but the actual implementation of it, all of those lines of Ruby or Java or JavaScript or whatever you're written whatever you wrote it in, that's generally just a maintenance cost. 
Yeah, that's one thing that uh, I think a lot of people don't realize is that it can be well-written code, it can be well-organized, et cetera, et cetera, but, uh, you know, time moves on. And, you know, so as people find uh, exploits on the on the framework or they find exploits on the Ruby VM or, you know, even just um, different things performance-wise or other, you know, that, that may or may not cause you pain, you know, your, your code is backsliding just, just from the sheer fact that people are still innovating and solving problems. So that's an interesting question. It, in a way, I, I mean, I totally understand what Josh is saying about, about the existing code being a liability and such. But at the same time, uh, as Katrina mentioned, that Chad Fowler talk is really good. And, and it's about, um, you know, basically, if your code's been around 10 years or something like that, or, you know, even even two, that means, you know, hopefully, ideally, it wasn't just some company pumping, you know, burning money or something. But, uh, you know, hopefully, that means that people were using it and like it, and, and that's why it's here, and that's why it needs improving and getting better, right? So... That's kind of what I was trying to say earlier about the um, about you know the fact that a project needs rescuing is is kind of nice you know that we can get some prototype or whatever out there some some system in some form test it out right and then and then see if we need to take it to the next level you know what are the uh, what are the superpowers that a that a hero needs to come in and rescue a project get. Is that a superpower? A good testing framework. A good good attitude. Yeah. Boy, that's so key, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's probably the key. You know, if you if you want to rescue your own project is to be the one that find a way to be the one that that, you know, brings a fresh attitude uh, to the rest of the team. And that can be really hard because I mean the the cycle of entropy is really, I mean, as, mu- as much as anything else, it's a psychological cy- cycle. Can, where, can you t- can you talk about that cycle a little bit? We've, we've mentioned that yeah. a little bit, but I think that's really important. Yeah, I mean, it, it's typically just you know, it's it's a lot of little things stacking up. You know, you 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 have a deadline to get a feature out, and you know, you maybe cut some corners um, to get it out on time, and that you know those those corners you cut, the tests you didn't write. Make that make that that bit of code harder to to start testing the next time. You know, adding tests to for the next uh, round of features, and that's it. Starts a little snowball uh, where it you know spreads outwards from there as as you write more code and you look at how, what it would take to get that code under test. And you're like, ah, oh, I don't have time for that, and you know, and so you you just go ahead and you know hack it in and and then figure out you know. What to do about the the bugs as they crop up, and it spreads outwards to the team. You know, it's an attitude towards the code that that gradually infects the whole team, and you know, you you just get depressed about the code. It bums you out. You you know, you you get up in the morning and you and you bring it up, and it just bums you out. And you know, and then that leads to all kinds of of other you know psychological stuff where you start you know practicing avoidance and you know. Hitting Reddit or Twitter instead of instead of um, touching the code because it bums you out so much to look at it, you know. And then there are sort of sort of ta- uh, tangential issues that that crop up where maybe the tests you have start taking forever, and so um, that gives you another excuse to to get distracted. And um, you know, and and then you start having 
you know, conversations with your team that are less about, about, you know, what, what awesome thing are we going to do next and are more about, man, doesn't this code suck? Um, you know, it's you know, sort of more about commiseration <laughs> sessions, which, you know, it's good to commiserate, but at the same time, it does, you know, now the, now the, the young, the young impressionable members of the team that just joined start getting infected with, with the attitude of, we all know that the code sucks and we just sort of deal with it rather than, you know, the attitude of, of like zero tolerance, zero tolerance for suckage. And, uh, yeah, you know, I've talked to a lot of, like, I think one of the reasons that, that people ask me to do pair programming sessions is just because they're kind of bummed out by their code and they, they want to have somebody who's come in, who's not bummed out about their code and who can bring in, you know, a fresh, a fresh technical perspective, but also a fresh psychological perspective. I, I, I totally agree. A, a fresh perspective is, I, I don't know, sometimes the entire reason to bring somebody else in. That's a great point. Everything you just said, like, I, I was just sitting over here nodding the whole time. I hope everybody can see that. Um, <laughs> but, like, we, you know, when we look at code, especially when we're brought in on, like, a rescue project, I don't know about you guys, but my immediate instinct when I look at somebody else's code, and maybe it's, you know, also when they tell me, you know, that this code needs some help or whatever. But my immediate instinct, I can open it up and I swear I barely see it and I just immediately have that reaction. It sucks. You know, and, and you have mm-hmm. to actually like fight against that instinct, right? The, you know, it's funny and I'm sure you've had the experience of, of opening up a piece of code, thinking that and then realizing it's code you wrote. Um. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah it, it's, it's often mine. It's even it's, worse than when, than when it's code that somebody you admire wrote. <laughs> it's, it's funny, though, because I, used to, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I used to experience that all the time. You know, open up any random piece of code. Oh, this is crap. And it's actually, I'm not feeling that as much anymore. Um, Good. I hope I get over it soon. <laughs> well, you know, and and I'm looking at that, and I'm realizing it seems to to correlate with with the fact that I've you know I'm a consulting pair programmer now instead of instead of somebody who's who's on um on contracts long term, and you know it's it's I guess it's all about that fresh attitude again. I I feel like I've got a little a little distance from you know not just my projects but all but all projects, which obviously you know. I, it could easily be be labeled as a hit and run artist, but it's it's really improved my perspective on people's code because nowadays, some you know I'll, I'll start a session and somebody will will bring up their code and like almost invariably the first thing they say is like this code is crap like I you know I'm so sorry about this code this is the worst code ever you know and number one it's never the worst code I've seen because I've seen some really bad code and but but number two you know they're always like so where do I start like what's the worst thing about this code and I'm like I don't know looks fine to me what's her, what's what about it is actually causing you pain right now you know once you get a once you can get a little bit of like equanimity and and uh, and you know sort of zen distance from the from code in general I think it starts bugging you a little less that like you know lots of little Lots of little details of the code are are wrong, you know, because they're the methods are too long or the names are names are one letters or you know it becomes more about well, okay, this is code, code is often like this, but it may or may not be causing anyone any pain right now, so you know if it's not causing any if that particular aspect of it isn't causing any anyone any pain, who the hell cares you know sandy ta- sandy Metz talks about 
the Omega mess where, you know, you've got this horrible, horrible, horrible ball of code. But if you can wall it off, if it works and if you can wall it off behind, uh, behind a, a nice interface that, you know, is basically just like a little slot in this, in a, in the, uh, the cell door where you, you pass food in, then, then who cares what it looks like on the inside? You know, the, the object oriented world lets us build some scar tissue around that and move on. Gary Bernhardt has been talking about that recently in a thread on Parlay. That that thread is just gold. It's it's really worth reading. He he has typical great Gary Bernhardt comments about how the code is evil and might decide to don a hockey mask and go killing people and stuff. And as a programmer, he's not prepared to handle that. Um, but he he talks about like what you said about. Um, you know, how he likes to keep the evil together and, and you know, kind of put that somewhere. And he's not saying that it can't be rehabilitated, but he feels like the neighbors should be warned when it moves in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, that whole thread, just everything he says about code is just great. So, so we've talked a lot about the different types of rescue projects and some of the symptoms that we see in the teams and things like that. But I, I have to wonder, I mean, the the one thing you keep bringing up, Chad Fowler, I remember when he was talking about the big rewrite, and uh, I'm wondering if and when that's a, an appropriate response to a rescue project. That, yeah, that that's that's a great question. I have it written down right here for us to talk about. When do you declare bankruptcy and go for the rewrite? Well, that's a toughie. I, I I don't know if I completely agree with the term bankruptcy because ultimately. What you're doing is you're you're just saying there's less technical debt to rebuild it than there is to re- rehabilitate it. Yeah, sure. I mean, we we talked about that when Sandy was on. You know, sometimes you just need to throw in the towel and start over. That that doesn't mean that there's nothing worth value harvesting in the existing code base. There's often a lot of learning encoded there, but uh, at some point you need to. You know, declaring bankruptcy doesn't mean you're going out of business either. Right. You know, it, it means that you're restructuring the company and you're just being protected from the creditors for a while, in many cases. That's a good point. I, I think that it's important to realize that, you know, it, it doesn't have to be an either-or choice. It doesn't have to be you commit all the way to rehabilitation or or the complete rewrite. Like, um in the Songcake blog post, which I know I've talked about in the past, where they talk about how they, uh, you know, moved to a SOA architecture and stuff like that. I mean, they rewrote at least large portions of their system. I'm sure some of it's still the same, but they they did that real carefully. You know, the first they would go through the code and uh, wall off part of it behind some service object. You know, they were still doing the exact same thing. They just inserted an object between the caller and the callee, right? And they that object had a method, and then inside it was the same code that was always there. But but once they had made that wall, right, then they could work on the other side of that wall safely, right? So then they section off that part and turn it into an SOA and, and end up communicating with it remotely or whatever. And, and so piece by piece, they kind of did a rewrite through rehabilitation, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things about Michael Feather's book um, on legacy code is is just you know the thing that really liberated me. I, I read that code when on on my first Rails job when I was dealing with a, a really really big app that had been accumulating since you know well well before pre Rails one days and that book was so was was so timely for me. Um, and one of the biggest things was just 
the idea of sprouting, you know, finding a seam somewhere and sprouting off a class so that you don't, you're not adding co- any more code to one of the existing legacy classes. You're, you're adding code to a new class that you can r- drive test first from day one. And it just, it, you know, really turned my perspective around. Another coming at it from the other side, if you do choose the rewrite as opposed to the rehabilitation, then it also doesn't mean you're beginning back at ground zero. It's like what Josh said, you know, uh, it's, it's usually more what was learned from the initial experiment or whatever that actually ends up being the asset that you take forward. And sometimes that's huge. You know, the project I'm working on right now we're basically doing a rewrite from a system that was used primarily as a prototype and got successful in traction. And now we're pretty much doing a rewrite, but it's like the, you know, there's the rule never start with SOA, right? Because you, you would need to see the system built out first. Well, they did that. They built the system out and now we're building its replacement and we know it needs some SOA in, in certain areas, right? So, mm-hmm. so we've already gained that benefit, you know? And yeah. how we're building it out now is pretty cool because we build these services and then we hook that service into the live system to some amount. It's so that we can see how traffic goes through it, you know, monitor how well that's going, what needs fixing, does it do the job we need it to do, you know, so piece by piece, we're actually connecting them into the main system, but then someday we'll end up swapping that main front end out for another front end, which we're working on that, you know, does even more. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I worked on a project that we, it was highly coupled, and that was really our problem. So you couldn't maintain one class without maintaining the whole system. And uh, yeah, so we, we opted to rewrite it. But, you know, ultimately, you know, as we segregated things out, we did build an SOA architecture. Um, but as we segregated things out, the funny thing was, was that all the logic we needed was still in those classes. And so for the most part, we could just move the classes over and then we could start working on the coupling that it no longer could count on because it was in its own component and, uh, and that worked out. And so it was a, it was a rewrite, but it wasn't a complete rewrite because we were stealing, um, you know, whole chunks of code out of the original, uh, piece mainly because the logic was sound and it did what we needed it to do. And so, yeah, I, I don't think that you wind up going all the way one way or the other when you do this. Yeah, the, the, I, well, I, I think that's very much dependent on the situation and the specific project. But I, there are, I agree that most of the time you don't need to just jettison all the old code and start over and, and that that transition is, is valuable. I, I have a, I have a, a little four-step plan for how to do a, research, a rescue project that I will I will uh, toss out here. That's Step interesting one. because I think I have a three-step plan I was thinking of earlier, so I wouldn't hear it. Oh, okay. I, I was I was hoping for a 12-step plan to get off of your terrible code. Okay, well, <laughs> so the first step is admitting you have a problem. Absolutely. I don't want to make fun of, of uh, anybody doing uh, recovery, because, but I think that that first step is really important. <laughs> okay, so, so my little four-step plan is, uh, the, you know, step one, as Avdi said, is when you're stuck in a hole, stop digging. So, you, you know, you, the first thing you do is you stop the bleeding. You stop making things worse. And usually, de- you know, depending on the project, but usually what that means is stop writing code. 
just you know, you know stop all of your stories in, in Tracker. Just don't write new stuff. That is yeah. so counterintuitive, though, for a lot of people, because yeah, well, they think they're digging their way back out by writing more code. Yeah. Well, well, it, if they if they were making things better by writing more code, they wouldn't need to rescue the project. That's, That's true. right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So so the so the first thing you do is you stop writing code, and and then the second thing you do is you take some time to figure out what the actual problems are. So you so you have to do some research. You have to look at the code. You have to look at the thing in production. You know, look at the error logs. Just collect the information and and. And a big part of that is going to be looking at the team and how the team works. A huge part of that. Yeah. Yeah. The, and, what yeah. you don't want to do is is come up with a description of the problem, which is actually like your pie in the sky rearchitecting of the whole system. Right. 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 So so you, you do that, you know, collect information and analyze it, you know, figure out what the what the real pain points are and what are the things that need to be fixed. And then three is you make a plan for you know, for fixing that, you know, what's your approach and, you know, okay. So this is that, uh, you know, step two, you know, then a miracle happens or something. <laughs> you know, and then step, step, step three is profit, right? <laughs> step two, right. yeah. Step one, collect underpants. Step two, what? <laughs> um, yep. so yeah. So the make a plan, that's, that's the magical, what are we going to do? Right. That's the insight. And then step four is you just incrementally work towards achieve towards digging yourself out of the hole. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's really important to to realize that this is something that takes time. You don't like day one is going to be painful and ugly, and it's still going to be painful and ugly a month later. It's a very gradual process. The other thing I want to point out too with this process is a lot of times you wind up circling back to to one or two because you start addressing some of these problems and you realize that there's a deeper problem somewhere else in the team, in another part of the code. And so, you know, you, you have to constantly be looking at it and going, okay, you know, what is the most effective? What is the right level of solving the problem? Because it's not always obvious when you start doing it, but at the same time, you have to start somewhere. And yeah. e even if you can't identify the core issues at step two, you can identify some issues at step two. And then you gain information as you work through steps three and four. And then you can come back and say, okay, well, now that we've solved kind of these these uh, issues that we figured out were more symptoms of this other thing, then we can start to address this other thing and make a plan to get that taken care of. And eventually you get to the point where you you know, your core issues are being handled and your, your code is better for it. You know, uh, what, what Katrina just said reminded me of something um, that I was talking to, to someone about in a, in a uh, session really recently where I, I was working with, with this guy through a, some refactoring, some pulling stuff out of a controller into into some other object. And I was explaining how to write the tests as to drive that extraction. And I was saying you're probably going to want to just um, you know set up the database in the same state in the in, in a in this in a state that that would exercise this code and then move the code as it is over into its new home you know try to try to set things up so that you can just copy and paste the code that's currently in this controller back in you know into its new home and he was saying but that's you know that's going to be a, a a database tied test so that's going to be a slow test and and what i had to explain was yeah it's it's going to be because the code that you're moving over from the controller is 
sort of digs deeply in, into the database structure um, in order to to easily extract it out to just move it over as a copy and paste. The tests are going to be tied to that structure as well, and and so they're not going to be the most optimal tests in the world, but they are going to be a step better than what you have. And I think that's what a lot of people miss when they're trying to get out of the hole is that you can't just jump to the top of the hole. You know, sometimes you have to to build little platforms along the way that are still kind of dirty. And it's it's not going to, you know, like Katrina said, it's 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 still going to be messy a month later and you know the steps along the way might not be steps all the way up to like you know the imaginary ideal where everything's you know super fast isolated tests and stuff like that so you have to be able to you have to be willing to accept incremental um incremental steps i think you also have to accept adding warts in order to get yourself out like you have to build yes scaffolding and these shims and these structures that will help you get out that you can then remove and then you can improve the 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 code and remove scar tissue but it's yeah. it's it's messy it's surgery it's you know blood and guts i, I, I mean like, i wound up explaining the the trend the the possible path to the future that would involve actually eventually throwing those tests away that we had just written um as you know as the code got factored out more nicely I, I, I do like the the imagery of the scaffold and really just real quick I just want to point out that you know that scaffold makes it so that you can navigate your code again so you can move up and down it's not the end product but it makes it so that you can move through the code and get the stuff done that you need to like you guys were saying and then eventually you'll remove it because you don't need it but in the meantime I, it, I think it's interesting that it's an intermediary step that makes makes it so that you can get stuff done yeah so one of the one of the things that I've noticed on on every rescue project that I've I've done, and I, I've done quite a few of them. I, th- I think you know anybody who's been around and consulted for a couple of years has done a bunch of rescue projects. Uh, but I've noticed that on on every project, there's like one really huge issue in the code that is you know sort of like it, it, I mean it's just the worst thing possible in the code and. Breaking that thing apart is is often it's like you know clearing the log jam. Mm. You know, a- after that, uh, it's much much easier to to make progress. And I mean, I, there was one that one like my first really big rescue project was they were having you know terrible scaling and performance issues, and um, it ended up being that their entire business was built around one query in their application, essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you know every, everything in their web application was feeding information into the database so that the user could come to the website and they would refresh the page and they'd see a whole bunch of information there. And that was an incredibly difficult query. But that was, it, you know, it's like going to the Twitter, you know, your Twitter page and seeing the feed there. Or, or you go to Facebook and you look at your timeline. It was that equivalent for them. It was, you know, it was the, it was the 98% activity for their users. And it was a terrible query. And it was, and they didn't realize that it was that one query that was breaking everything because that was putting such a ridiculous load on the database that the database server was so overwhelmed, its entire performance was hosed. And it, and it took us a while to figure out what was going on. You know, so we had to, you know, do that step two research and analyze a lot. But once we, once we figured that out and came up with a, a, a reasonable strategy for solving that, which involved, you know, changing the schema and denormalizing things a lot, and then you know partitioning data so that there wasn't as much of it to deal with all at once. It was a it was a tough nut to crack, 
but after we fixed that that one query to be able to run I believe I believe we improved it. It ran about seven thousand times faster when we were done, and the entire database layer got much more performant, and then the entire app got much more performant, and then we could actually see what all the what all the small issues were. So we got visibility into seeing what was going on in the application at large, and things became much easier to deal with. And and I've and I've seen that pattern recur in many projects where there is like one really tough nut, and if you can you know make a good go at that, then that frees up everything else in the application, and suddenly you know it's like a breath of fresh air. Somebody opened a window, and everyone can breathe again, and you can make progress. Is yeah. does that does that sound familiar to people? Yes, yes, oh, it yeah. does. Absolutely. And that, so and that definitely comes back to the idea of, you know, a lot of times it's it's the things that you can do for the psychological health of the team that really make a difference. Oh, yeah. A big win is is a huge uh, uh, psychological boost for the team. Yeah. And I like yeah. I like the idea of getting the one big thing out of your face so that you can see all of the other issues. I actually want to talk about the psychology a little because I liked your steps a lot, Josh, and, and about the only thing I would add to them, like... In that second step, where you're you're trying to figure out the problems and and uh, you know what it needs, um, I think that one of the key things is um, we get we get trapped in like a blame guilt cycle there, right? We have that natural tendency to uh, you know uh, to just move to that, and um, and and you so got to get away from that. I mean, I, I talked earlier about how when I look at somebody else's code, my Initial reaction is that sucks, and what I actually mm-hmm. mean is that I don't understand it because I haven't spent the time to figure it out, right? And and then you know it, you know I've I've mentioned several times I'm sure that I I'll think oh I'll rewrite it in ten lines and then you know three weeks later I have a really good appreciation for what that code was actually doing, <laughs> you know? yeah. um, and and in that whole cycle you know of how things go bad of not knowing. The where the stress was going to be on the system, and that that one query you wrote would end up being the horrible sticking point, you know, that kept the app from going forward. That's all totally normal. That happens to everybody, you know. And that and that's you, you, there's no reason to like blame yourself. It's it's really that you need to treat it as the asset of you've learned what the problem is and how you need to fix it and and what to avoid in this particular uh, application that you have. That's the, the one thing I wanted to add about step two. And then step three, also from a kind of psychological bent, is you can fix it, right? And anything can be improved. And, and you can, you know, you, you won't hit a point where you're absolutely required to throw it away and rewrite it. Now that that may be advantageous because you know you're you're going to change a whole bunch of things at once. Then maybe you can leave the old system in place and you can build on the side on something else and you can go much faster because of that. And it's okay to redo and then transition over or something like that. But there there may be reasons, but there it you can fix something. You can build the scaffolding. You can redirect the flow of water, you know, a little bit so that you can move some items and shift things around and 
you know, it, it will be a hard, long process in some cases, but but that everything is fixable and you can change it, right? James, I, I agree with that, but I will throw one, uh, one caveat in there and that uh, sometimes the problem can't be fixed with the team the way it is. It, and I, I want to, so I'm going to uh, steal one of my picks and mention it now, and that's uh, Sarah May's keynote from RubyConf last year. And I, I may have actually picked that before in a, a, a previous episode, but uh, I mean, Sarah's talk was was really great. And she she talked about, um, what is it, like Conway's Law, where uh, he, he uh, said that, um, that the structure of your software follows the structure of your team. And the, uh, I think Grady Booch's example of that was that if you have a, a four team uh, project that, you know, writing a compiler, you'll end up with a four pass compiler and that the structure of your team or the processes that your team follow are often the thing that you can get the most value from modifying. Yeah. You know, a lot of times just changed in the way that the team communicates. And I, I'm going to plug extreme programming now because the a lot of the t um, practices in extreme programming uh, were were built to uh, basically work against the natural proclivity of uh, you know developers versus product people versus uh, you know managers uh, to all uh, you know basically silo themselves and set up uh, divisions in the team and uh, you know point fingers etc. Uh, th those are all very natural things to happen when you have uh, you know certain kinds of, of team structures and XP is very much about making you know feedback loops tight and communication responsive and it's it's very much a process for clear communication mm -hmm. and just you know, if your team's in trouble, if your project's in trouble, you can often do far worse than just going to, you know, XP explained, read through it, and start applying stuff. Just to focus in on one one aspect of that, one of the lightweight changes you can make in, in your team dynamics is just to start pairing. And I think that's really, really important on legacy projects. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if if for no other reason than moral support. I mean, if you're if you're if you know you're in the rut where you're going to go and look at that code and then you're going to go hit Twitter because, oh my God, um, it can be so helpful to just have somebody by your side, um, you know, either to commiserate or just to sort of help you keep focused because, because you're talking about the code um, or, or whatever, but just not to work on it alone. And hey, you know, if, if that happens to be somebody that you know, you've been playing the blame game with, then so much the better because if you actually sit down with them, whether remotely or 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 co-located, if you actually sit down with them and talk about the problems, um, you know, you'll probably find you have a lot of common ground and a lot less um, recrimination. The other thing that that I think that a lot of uh, rescue projects have is that all of this depression and frustration and it has caused broken trust. Like people don't trust anymore. The cl clients don't trust that you'll deliver. And and one of the one of the really important things that that I think going back to what Josh said, I think that Agile or XP helps with is getting these that that feedback loop as tight as you can, and the the communication sort of improved so that the the communication happens more quickly as well will help build back that trust. Yeah. Absolutely. I, that's, a, that's a great point. 
I think teams also, though, I mean, what you're talking about, uh, Josh, especially that, you know, some things can't be fixed with the certain teams. But I guess I feel, too, that, that then you start refactoring the team and then you move to refactoring the code problem. Mm-hmm. That there, that there is a path there. It's maybe a longer path and a trickier path, but there is a path. Yeah. Another team refactoring is just get some rest. <laughs> you know. I yeah, mean, absolutely. Every, y- y- every the, time. The thing about the cycle, the death spiral is, uh, well, the death march really is that you, you know, you're more and more stressed because things are getting behind, and so you work longer and longer hours, and that just makes it worse. I, I always forget the power of walking away. That's like one of my big crutches. Like, I'll get into it with some bug. I, I had this happen like two days ago where I'm chasing something down. I've rewritten the code like three times to run into the exact same wall every time, you know, and you just you get stuck and you get those blinders on and you can't think outside the box anymore. And I, I ended up leaving, not by choice, but because I had somewhere else I had to be. And leaving, and sure enough, you know, been away from it for like an hour, and the answer just pops into my head, you know, not even thinking about it at all. And it's just that you cannot underestimate the power of walking away. Yeah. David and I used to do that as well when we were working at Public Engines. We'd One of us would be facing a hairy problem, and, you know, one of us would look at the other guy and go, hey, you want to go for a walk? And so we'd go walk around the parking lot and then come back in. And yeah, usually the solution would present itself during the walk, even oh, though so we were talking about life or whatever. Well, so what we were talking about earlier that often it's the fresh perspective that has the most value from an outside consultant. Mm-hmm. And you can, it, so if you can change your perspective, you know, that you can do it yourself. One of um, my favorite tricks in all of programming that has saved me more times than I can possibly count, whenever I'm doing something and I'm really stuck, I just stop and do it backwards. Like whatever the whatever I'm trying to do, for example, if I'm trying to put commas in a number, you know, uh, every every three digits or whatever, and it's hard from the front, hit string reverse and try again. And the reason that almost always works is it immediately changes your perspective. It forces a perspective change, right? So just reverse it and try again. Works often. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. so so I I didn't have a chance to just drop this this quip in naturally, but I but uh, when we we're talking about rescue projects, I just gonna say my life is a rescue project. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I, I think there are days we all feel that way. <laughs> yeah, when, when I wake up two minutes before the Rogues podcast begins, I definitely feel that way. That's that's why you need pairs, right, Avdi? <laughs> yeah. All right, then yeah, you can both actually, sleep in. Yeah, um, that's that's kind of really true for me right now. <laughs> and yeah, it's. I, I guess I guess there's uh, maybe I'll talk about it a little bit just because I feel like there is a lot of of uh, crossover for like how this applies to projects. But you know I I have I spent the last few weeks in a pretty depressed um, state, and um, you know and, and looking at introspecting about it, I realized it was really the 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 result of accumulated stress, you know, over months and months, and. I think what my psyche was desperately trying to do 
was to force me to take a break despite my protestations that now of all times I cannot possibly take a break. And I, quite honestly, I, I spent the last week or so doing pretty much nothing but watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, <laughs> except for season four, that's incredibly therapeutic. <laughs> yes, it is. Yep. And, um, you know, I finally just said, okay, I fine, I accept it. I'm going to, um, you know, at the point where I was just, you know, basically too depressed to do anything else, I, I uh, started dropping my commitments and, and uh, goofing off instead. And I'm feeling a little better now. And speaking of having a pair, um, my wife gave me some, some really good counsel during this, this uh, and support during this uh, period. But, um, but yeah, you know, I almost think that for some teams, the, the most counterintuitive but effective thing might just be to take a break, you know, goof off for a while. Um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel really weird because now of all times, you can't possibly afford to do it. But chances are, it's, it may be, you know, the only thing you can af- really afford to do. Well, well that, that's about the moment when Dr. Crusher insists that Captain Picard go on vacation. Right. And he's <laughs> like, I can't do that now. And he always winds up on a planet with beautiful women and lots of problems. And lots of problems, yeah. I saw that episode. Yeah, really. His vacations don't seem that relaxing to me. <laughs> well, well, he, he has the disadvantage of being the main character. That's yeah. true. Yeah, it's more expected of you when you're the main character. Yeah. Yeah, especially when you're bald in such a way to where all the women can't seem to keep their eyes or hands off you. <laughs> I always thought well, that was funny. He's like this, you know, this older guy with a bald head and whatever. And yeah, all the women are like, ooh. In the, in the future, that's hot. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Anyway, let's get to the picks. I think we're devolving. <laughs> I think we've devolved. <laughs> okay. Avdi, you want to start us off? I guess I'll just pick uh, this video that I think somebody on the Parley list recommended. And it's, it's it's not a new video, but I hadn't seen it. Michael Feathers did a talk called The Deep Synergy Between Testability and Good Design. And um, it's a really good video. I enjoyed it. Worth seeing. All right. That's Josh, it. what are your picks? As I mentioned before, Sarah May's keynote from RubyConf last year uh, was, uh, was t- the title An Insufficiency of Good Design uh, was a really great talk about you know, how to uh, navigate the waters of of your process and your team structure and what impact that has on the product that you build and how you build it. So I, I, uh, I'm going to pick that. And then I, th- I don't think this has been picked before, but uh, I saw it mentioned on Parlay and I actually went and finally tried it. I've been, this has been on my radar for a bit. So Harvard um, has some uh, online tests that are that they've made available that people can do to help uncover their implicit biases or, th- or their unconscious biases. So they have have these little five to ten minute uh, tests that you can do where you can find out uh, the, your unconscious biases against people uh, uh, based on race or based on gender and professionalism or you know, various other things that that people often have. Um, biases about and i i walked through a couple of these last night and it was really fascinating and a lot of it lined up with my expectations and some of it didn't and you know so i think it's i think it's really good there's been a lot of uh, talk about diversity in the ruby community in the last 
I don't know, maybe a couple years even, but it's heated up a lot in the last six months, I think. And I think it's it's good for us to to start at home and look at our own biases and you know, see how that can affect our thinking. So I, I, that's a that was really interesting. Um, and then there's something I just noticed this morning, and that's that um, those uh, those White House petitions, you know, the We the People site at the White House. Uh, there was a blog post today talking about they're they're raising the level of signatures from 25k because. They uh, now, you know, that now gets, uh, you know, they reach that threshold usually in a couple days uh, rather than a couple weeks. And uh, so they, they're upping the threshold. But as part of that announcement, they announced that they are open sourcing their uh, signature platform and that, hmm. they're, and that they're hoping for contributions from people. But they're also making the platform uh, basically freely available for anyone to adopt and use for their own efforts. And I thought that was that was uh, something worth mentioning. I think it's really great to see the government involved in open source and contributing to open source. But they so. did refuse to build a Death Star, Josh. <laughs> Josh, did the bias detector note your your bias against functional programming? <laughs> no, nobody's built that. I, w- I was hoping somebody would build that. <laughs> we need the programming equivalent. Yeah, Josh has biases against. Functional programming, the callable interface. The callable protocol, yeah. 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 I, I have yeah. no bias against functional programming. I just like to see it kept in its place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he sees something written in a functional functional language, and he says, this code is crap. <laughs> I've never said that about functional programming. I've only said that about functional programming masquerading as object-oriented programming. Nice. <laughs> All right. Katrina, what are your picks? My first pick is um, an article that was published in the Prague Prog magazine back in 2010 called The Mikado Method. And this is really helpful if you're trying to break dependencies or, or discover dependencies in, uh, in a complicated code base. And basically, you figure out what you need to do and you do it as naively as you can until you get stuck. And then you draw a, a diagram saying what the dependency is. You scratch your whole refactoring and you start working on the dependency. And you build up this whole graph of dependencies, which you then can do one by one. It's really interesting. Um, the second is a gem by Tim Pease called Servalux. So if you're writing a lot Woo! of <laughs> yeah, if you're writing a lot of demons, um, this is very very helpful. Plus one. Yeah, I've been using yeah, it for a few it's months. Awesome. So that's available on GitHub. And then the third pick is um, an iPad game that somebody told me about a few days ago called The Room. And it's just this beautifully wrought puzzle game. It's a long sort of puzzle box um, experience, and it's just gorgeous. So those are my picks. Oh, hey, Mark. <sighs> Did nobody get that? I didn't get it. Some mm-hmm. listener is going to get that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We hope nobody. Nobody here has seen the room. I haven't. No. 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 Oh, you guys are missing <laughs> out. All right. I uh, uh, new extra pick the movie The Room, um, which is the the greatest film ever made. I, uh, I I particularly recommend watching it with the riff tracks commentary. <laughs> I love those. All right, uh, James. What are your picks? I actually had like a couple of totally goof off picks picked and then the conversation was so good I'm like oh I have picks that are actually related to this so I switched up 
So I'll be all fun and games next week, but I'm all business this week. The If you are doing rescue projects and refactoring and trying to get performance or busting people things up, eventually you're going to find uh, SOA, right? And we've talked a ton about that and how valuable it is, but I think it's only common sense, right? Almost, what does Sandy say? You know, uh, 90% of the time, the answer in programming is go back, take smaller take smaller steps, right? Break it up into smaller pieces. Um, so SOA is all about that, right? For whole applications. Um, and there's really good uh, talk from RubyConf, uh, from Chris Hunt, one of the Square guys um, who we've had on the show. I mean that he works for Square, not that he is a Square. Um, and uh, it, it's a great talk about how they do uh, uh, service-oriented architecture at Square really pay attention to like they they decide things like this is important to us and then they re-architect their process around that thing that's important to them and i'm not even making judgments on whether or not that's even a good thing to say is important or not but it's interesting how they change their process to put that thing in the front and it's very awesome and then there's kind of a follow-up blog post uh, written by uh, one of the collective idea people, uh, Steve Rit Richard. Um, anyways, it's about um, how you can use uh, SSL and authentication with SOA uh, to do some kind of neat tricks that I hadn't thought about before. Uh, so those two are kind of a nice one-two punch. And then for non-technical but totally mind-expanding for me at least, it came up in the Angela Harms episode about how uh, valuable nonviolent communication is. Uh, and I finally got around to actually reading a book on nonviolent communication called Nonviolent Communication. And it, it's really great. Uh, like, you know, it's one of those books where I'm pretty sure I don't agree with absolutely everything in it, which means it was, you know, the perfect book to read, of course. Um, and, you know, I, I wouldn't say this about very many books, but I'm, I'm pretty darn certain just reading this actually made me a better person. So, uh, and it, it applies to almost everything we've talked about today with, um, you know, the psychology, the blaming, the figuring out the needs, all of that's in there. So super on topic and relevant. Those are my Does this mean you're going to start, does, does this mean you're going to stop beating me up every time we have a conversation? Shut up, Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, stop using your razor wit and cut it into shreds. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. for sure. I've actually been going around, you know, I, I don't think, I knew empathy was important, and I think it was one of those things I always thought I had, but uh, I didn't even really understand the definition of empathy until I read this book. And then I've actually been making real effort to get better at it lately since I started reading it. And the other day I, I said something to my wife and she actually turns around and she's like, are you practicing your empathy on me? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Awesome. All right. Well, I guess I'm, I'm the last one. Um, I have two picks. Um, they're both gadgets um, and they're things that uh, have been real nice to have, especially going down to uh, CES. The first one is my uh, video camera. It's a Canon, or not Canon, it's a Kodak ZI8 camera. It's just a little handheld camera. Uh does video at 1080p and 720p. And, you know, I got some videos of some of the cool stuff that they had at CES. Um, 
and and it just fits in my pocket, which is real nice. So I don't have to, you know, I don't have to carry anything around that's real bulky or anything, and I can you know capture video of whatever it is that I'm looking at. Um, the other one is is something that I kind of been using since I got back from CES. Um, it's it's something that my wife got me for Christmas. It's a power mat, and it uses um, inductance, uh, magnetic inductance to charge devices. And it's kind of cool because it'll actually detect when your device is fully charged and then it'll just stop putting power into it. And so, you know, it doesn't run all the time. And she got me one with three charging stations on it. So I had to go buy a couple more of what they call doors, um, which are just little um, magnetic squares that just sit on there. And you can also get cases for your phones and stuff, too, that have the squares uh, built in, but, um, or the doors built in. But anyway, the power mat's really kind of a cool deal. And I put a link to both of those in the, in the show, in the show notes. So, uh, you know, go check those out and, um, yeah, we'll wrap this up. Also, you can go sign up for Ruby Rogues Parlay. Um, I wasn't on the show last week and I haven't listened to it yet. So I don't know if this was brought up, but you can go to parlay.rubyrogues.com. You can spell parlay with an E or a Y or an A and it'll take you to the right place. And uh, what? But, but but just for the record, the correct spelling is P A R L E Y. Yes, but uh, anyway, so just go to parley.rubyrogues.com and sign up. And uh, we have the Stripe uh, sign up now. So if you want to use a credit card instead of PayPal, I know a lot of people were asking for that. Um, it's available, and you can go sign up. Uh, with that, we'll wrap up. We'll catch you all next week. And uh, just thanks to the panelists again for coming. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.